Our goal as Christians should be to be maturing and to make maturing followers of Christ to the glory of God. And you say, well, okay, so how does John bring us to that point? Well, if you're going to follow someone, you have to kind of be around them, right? right? You, have to, you have to have some knowledge of them, right? You have to have some interaction with them on some level. You know, if I, if I want to be a great basketball player, you know, and, and I'm going to go back with MJ, okay? So I'm sorry. Michael Jordan's the, the great basketball player of my life. I'm sorry, the ones today, they're all showboats. But, uh, so I go back, I go back to Michael Jordan, right? If I wanted to be, if I want to be the perfect, or as, as close to perfect a basketball player as I can be, if I'm, I'm gonna have to get somebody to, to help me, right? Cause I can't just do it on my own. I don't, I don't know enough. And I don't know all the drills to do. I don't know how to get myself into a much better shape. You know, I don't, I don't know how to, how to get there from where I am. All right? I like basketball. I enjoy shooting the basketball around. I don't go out there because I can't keep up. But, uh, but I enjoy, at least I did when I was younger, I enjoy playing basketball. And, but if I wanted to be like Mike, for those of you who are old like me, if I wanted to be like Mike, I need to be around Mike. Right? I need to see Mike. I need to watch what he does, do what he does, see what he does. If I want to be like him, I've got to know him intimately so that I can be like Mike. Well, if our purpose as followers of Christ is to become mature followers of Christ, if our goal is to be like Christ, then we need to know what Christ is like. Right? We need to see Christ for who he is, for what he is like. And that's what John really does for us, I think. I think John, for me, it's one of the, the, the gospels, one of the books in the New Testament that really reveals Christ for who he is. Not that Matthew and Mark and Luke don't, <laughs> right? But when we look at who, John's purpose in writing the book, somebody in Sunday school, what's John's purpose in writing the book of John? What? That you may believe, right? That he says it at the end. He says the purpose of the book, especially specifically talking about the wonders and the miracles that he does, which we're going to talk about one today, is so that you will believe, right? So that you will believe because it takes faith in the person that we want to be like in order to continue being like them. Have you ever lost faith in somebody that you held as a somebody of authority maybe or somebody that, you know, maybe was a great athlete, <laughs> and they did something really dumb, and you kind of lost faith in them because all of a sudden you, you couldn't follow them anymore, right? The great thing about Jesus Christ is you don't find that because he's God. And that's what John describes to us. He describes to us Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In fact, Jesus Christ as God. And we see him for who he truly, really is. So this morning as we get into chapter 2, and as we move forward, keep that in mind. Why are we studying John? Because John reveals to us what Jesus Christ was like. He reveals to us the deity of Christ, and he reveals to us the humanity of Christ combined. And I think the interesting thing is John had a special relationship with Christ, did he not? You know, he was one of the the three, (laughs) the big three, right? He was one of the three guys who were, you know, we like to use this term inner circle, um, I'm not a huge fan of that concept, but you know, he, they were often together with Christ a little bit more than the others. They were, he pulled them aside when they, when they were praying. Remember, he pulled Peter, James, and John over 
with him to go a little bit further to pray um, when he was praying in Gethsemane, right? So there was a little bit more of a special relationship between John and Jesus. And who better to help us understand what Jesus Christ is like than a man who spent so much time with him, who was close to him, who at one point says he was leaning on his chest, right? That's an intimate relationship that they had. Who better to learn what Christ is like than from a man like John? And so here we have John's gospel is a recording of what he has observed about Jesus Christ. And this story specifically in John chapter 2 is, is an observation of, uh, of the early ministry of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's the first miracle that we come to in the Gospels, right? And uh, I, I don't want to spend a ton of time rehashing this story. We're going to dig into it a little bit deeper uh, this morning <clears throat> um, because you all, you all know the story, right? You all know the story. They're at a wedding. They run out of wine. Jesus turns the water into the wine. Okay, good, done. I beat Jeff. We're out in 15 minutes. All right. <laughs> it seems like that's it, right? It seems like it's pretty cut and dried, straightforward. Um, but one of the purposes of going through the book of John like we are is not, so, not just so that we can see what John has to say about Christ, but so that we as elders can show you what it looks like to take the Word of God, to dig into it, and to apply it to our lives. All right, And that's more than just reading over the story, right? Because I guarantee you, if you're not planning on doing that, you're going to go to this book and you're going to read chapter 2, you're going to read through the first 12 verses and be like, oh, that's a great story, I love that story. Okay, moving on, right? Because we know it. We could all practically recite it, right? But I want to dig into it a little bit deeper this morning and just think through what is actually going on. What is, what is happening you know, take the time to study what's going on in these scenarios. Think about what's going on in these scenarios. And I think it might, you know, open your mind to some other things that God has for us here in this story of Jesus turning the water into wine. Let's go ahead and read through the passage, John chapter 2, starting verses 1 uh, through 12. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to read off of here so I can keep it up. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. (laughs) Woman, what what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana and Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And and after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. All right, 
very familiar story, John chapter 2, 1 through 12. Everybody has been there. So, I want to take a little deeper dive this morning and get into what's going on in this passage. All right, I want to take a look and see what the, the, the history is. You know, I, I want to just, I want to ask questions, right? Because that's how we study scripture, is we ask questions. We look at the scripture and we say, why is that happening? You know, what is the purpose of this? Okay, we can, we can pull back and say, well, the purpose is, you know, to show the glory of God because he was all powerful, right? Yes. <laughs> all right. That, that is a purpose, but I, there's more to it. There's, there's deeper things about it that I think bring out how much of an interesting thing it is that he did this miracle. So, um, I've subtitled this five W's in Christ's first miracle. For those sports fans, this does not mean wins. All right. This is actual letter W. Okay. So five W's in Christ's first miracle. The first W is the wedding. All right. Don't get ahead of me. The wedding. We see that in uh, the first couple of verses here. John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Let's look at it again. It says, in the, oops, that's John chapter 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Okay, let's just stop for a minute. The wedding. Whose wedding? Huh? Doesn't say, right? Okay, so whose wedding? We don't know. So we, we know that it was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Okay, so it was a, a wedding, fairly a prominent wedding apparently, because they invited people um, who it seems like to me, when you read this text, some people were maybe an afterthought on the guest list. Um, it's interesting. It says that on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, right? And then it's almost like Jesus and his disciples are an afterthought. You kind of get that feeling when you read that. It says, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, right? But so I don't know if maybe, maybe Mary was, had some significant, uh, place in this wedding. You know, she obviously was very concerned later on that there was, uh, no wine. So we don't know if maybe, maybe she was the wedding planner. <laughs> but I don't, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, right? It doesn't tell us whose wedding it was. It doesn't tell us if it was a relative. It doesn't tell us, um, really why it was necessary for them to be there. It just told us that there was a wedding in Cana and they were there. Now, if you go and you look at um, what history tells us about Jewish weddings, they um, could be very large ordeals, right? And many times there were feasts. Many times they were multiple day feasts, uh, often up to even a week, all right? So when you think about that, think about this concept of a week-long wedding, um, I don't know about you. How, how, let, let me just ask this question. How many of you had more than 50 people at your wedding? Raise your hand. Okay, kids should not be raising their hand. All right? All right, good. If you had more than 50, keep them up. Keep them up. If you had more than 50 people at your wedding. Okay, if you had more than 100 people at your wedding, keep your hand up. All right? More than 100 people. More than 200 people. More than 300 people. So the campus and, and we are the only... Popular people. All right, good. How, do you know about roughly how many people you had? What? 350? Yes. If my memory is correct, and Sarah's not in here to verify, so we'll have to ask her later. I believe we had over 500 people at my wedding. I can tell you right now, I'm really glad. Shh. I'm really glad. Be quiet. <laughs> I'm really glad that we didn't serve a meal. 
<laughs> at that wedding. It was cake, Costco cake, uh, and mints and nuts. <laughs> That's what we did at our wedding. All right, well, you got 500 people. Uh, I went to Tri-City Baptist Church. I grew up in Tri-City. She grew up at Eagle Heights. Lots of people involved in our lives throughout the years. That's that's the only reason why we had that many. Um, I I personally would never do that again. <laughs> but that we we had a big wedding, right? So we had. We, I, I kind of, to some degree, can understand this this whole thing that's going on here in the wedding in Cana because we had a lot of people. I remember walking in. We 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 made this mistake of greeting everybody as they left the row. So we stood there and shook hands and, you know, gave hugs while people were going. We thought that might be faster than doing like a receiving line. People could get, once they get out, they can go eat, you know. And man, my feet hurt after that. I mean, I, I guarantee you we didn't talk to all 500 people, but it felt like it. And we get in, we got in there, we got into the reception. I had like half a piece of cake and, you know, signed the document. And about that time we were, Walking out the door, um, my father-in-law actually about halfway through the reception went and got changed into shorts and a t-shirt and started tearing down the uh, the auditorium. So uh, it was it was his last daughter. He's like, "I'm done. We're good. I'm out." All right. <laughs> so <laughs> we have kind of an interesting uh, interesting dynamic there as far as our wedding is concerned. But so this wedding at Cana, this wedding was a big deal, right? They had lots of people. They probably had. Half the city there, I don't know. It was a huge deal. They had a lot of people who had even traveled to come to this place. And so, and especially if you think about the fact that it's very possible that it was happening over multiple days, that there were feasts going on, that they were drinking a lot of wine because they were there a long time, it's very logical that the wine would run out, right? So, you know, it's more, more than just saying, Jesus was at a wedding in Cana. I mean, when we think about weddings, our typical wedding is what? Three hours? Maybe? You know? Yeah. Yeah, including reception. No, no, no. No, not the, not the wedding wedding. I'm talking the whole, the whole kit and caboodle, maybe three hours, five hours, just depends on, you know, how they do it. You know, it's really not, it's not even a day. You know? It's not even a whole day. And, and, and you, trying to put our understanding of a wedding in the context of John chapter 2 doesn't work. You know, because we look at that and we go, that's just really bad planning. Right? I mean, somebody did not take a good head count when they, when they planned for this wedding. But when you think about the process of what they did for their weddings, the, the length of time that their weddings would go, it makes much more sense that at some point the wine's going to run out. Right? It makes, it makes sense that it's going to happen. Now, obviously, there was a planning error. Somebody invited too many people or, you know, whatever the, whatever the issue was and that they ran out. But I think it's interesting as you dig into the, the details of the, of the passage, right? As you dig into what the verses say and as you look at history, as you look at other things to supplement our understanding of the Word of God, it makes things a little bit more clear, does it not? It makes it more interesting, does it not? I mean, how many times have you read the story of Jesus changing the water into wine? Fifty, hundred, thousand, I don't know, you know, a lot, right? But when you sit there and you dig into it and you say, well, what is actually going on here? This story just got a whole lot more interesting because of what's going on at the time, what happens at those weddings, you know? It's a whole lot more interesting. So Jesus is here, 
We don't know how long Jesus was there. Like, like we said, we don't have a lot of details about this wedding. You know, we don't know why he was there, who he was there to, you know, was he on the groom's side, the bride's side? We don't know. You know, he, he was there though. He was there and his disciples were there with him. Um, and that's all we know about the wedding. But it's part of the story, okay? So we have the first W is the wedding. W number two, the woman. I use this because I needed another W. And because that's what Jesus said. <laughs> the woman. Who's he referring to? Mary, right? Okay, so you guys know the story. Here we go. Let's go back to back to our passage. John chapter 2, starting in verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. <clears throat> All right, so... Interesting dialogue here. Um, again, if we if we read over it quickly, it's just a conversation, right? And in fact, if, if we read over it quickly, Jesus kind of sounds a little rude, <laughs> quite honestly. Um, we need to look at what's going on, right? We need to look at their relationship. Um, we don't know if Joseph's even around anymore at this point. Chances are probably not. Um, we don't really see anything in Scripture about Joseph after Matthew 2, I think, and Luke 2, uh, other than people referring to Jesus as the son of Joseph, right? And so we, we don't have any knowledge of Joseph, his actions, whether he's there, whether he's alive. He's not mentioned in the passage. Um, pretty much from here on throughout Scripture, it's Mary. Mary this, Mary that, Mary the mother of Jesus. We just don't hear anything about Joseph. And the common thought is that Joseph is dead. He's passed away from uh, whatever reason, we don't know. When you think about that, <clears throat> Jesus then would be the firstborn. He would have been considered in the Jewish uh, tradition the one who would, in essence, take the father's place. Right? He would be the one that's in charge of the family. Right? He would be the one who provided. It's very likely that Jesus before he started his ministry, was working as a carpenter, doing his father's business. It's very likely that he was fulfilling that Jewish role of the firstborn, that he was taking on the responsibility for the family. Um, And so I think when you look at that, when you think about what that relationship probably looked like, you know, here's a man who's 30 years old, all right, and his mother has, has been widowed, more than likely. Um, he's probably the, basically the head of the household. You know that, That's a little bit of a different dynamic than you usually think of Mary and Jesus, right? Because how, how do we typically think of Mary and Jesus? Right, yeah? I mean, really, don't we usually think of Jesus, the baby, the child of Mary, Right? When we think of that relationship, you know, we think of him as a baby. We think of him as a child. You know, we see a little bit of of this back and forth when he's older, as as an older child, and he's in the temple, remember? And and he says, you know, I have to be about my father's business. You know, I have to do God's will. Um, But but then he obeys and he goes with them. Um, we, we We kind of in our minds have that picture 
of Jesus and Mary, do we not? We have that concept of Jesus, the son of Mary. And while that is still true, um, I think when you look at the Jewish tradition and how they, how they lived and how they practiced and, and their lives, how things worked out, Jesus probably here was very much in an authoritarian role, role within the family. He was most likely taking on the role of the father within the family. Now, it doesn't mean married his mother. <laughs> All right? It just means that he was sort of in charge. Is it any wonder uh, then when, when you hear that his brothers uh, did not follow him? Does that, does that maybe make a little bit more sense why? Do you think maybe they had a little beef with the guy in charge leaving family for three years? I think I would. <laughs> you know, here's the guy. He's, he's been doing dad's job. He's been taking care of the family. He's been making decisions for the family. You know, he, he's, he's basically he's the number one guy. And all of a sudden, he goes off. First of all, he goes off for 40 days in the desert by himself. You know, that was weird enough, but at least he came back from that. And, uh, and that now he's going off with these other dudes, just walking around the country, teaching and preaching, right? I mean, I'd be, I'd be a little miffed too. <laughs> so isn't it, is it any wonder that these guys looked at Christ, whether they understood that he was the son of God or not? Is it any wonder that maybe they were a little miffed <laughs> that he was walking away? from responsibility in their minds. And so it's interesting when you think about, when you examine history, when you examine how things happened back then, I think it makes this conversation a little bit easier to swallow. (laughs) Because again, we look at this and we can kind of think, man, you know, Jesus is kind of being a little little rough here. Um, But it's not his wedding. It's not his, it's, it, you know, he has nothing to do with it. It, it's, it seems almost like he and his disciples are maybe an afterthought invite uh, from the beginning. But here's, here's his mother, and she comes to him with this problem. And I think it's very interesting the way that she does this. Um, she comes in with a problem, and Jesus said, you know, now is not my time. Because I, I, I have to ask this question, why would she bring it to him? Why would she come to Jesus about wine? I mean, if he's taken on this role as a carpenter for however many years, you know, if he's, if he's being the head of the family, why would she come to him about wine? We don't have anything in Scripture that tells us that he had performed miracles before this. So it just makes you wonder, what was she expecting him to do? I don't know. Maybe she just thought, you're the son of God. <laughs> you can handle it, whatever it is, right? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I think it's an interesting question. It's something, again, to think about, to ponder, to wonder, to dig, to study, to learn, right? Why would Mary come to Jesus? Partially, maybe it was because he was in that leadership role in the family. Um, and it's interesting how she approaches this, right? She says, hey, we're running out of wine, or we're out of wine, and Jesus says, "Yeah, I'll use today's vernacular. I don't know what you want me to do about it, right?" <clears throat> and then what does she do? Do what he says, right? Just bloop, here you go, walk away, <laughs> right? Isn't that interesting? She just basically hands him a problem and says, "Good luck." <laughs> you know, here's some guys. Tell them what to do. I mean. What do you do with that? (laughs) 
What do you do as a, as a, as a person who's not the son of God with that? I, I, I wouldn't be able to do anything with it. Um, and yet here, even, even in the midst of this conversation and, and what seems like kind of Christ being a little, you know, look, this is not my job. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not the right time. It's somewhat confrontational. Even, even when all this happens, we see his grace, do we not? Did Christ have to do anything? No. He clearly stated that he didn't. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And I think that's an interesting point. Keep that in mind when it says, my hour has not yet come. Okay? I think that is key to how he goes about doing this. All right? So, she just drops it off on his doorstep. <laughs> says, here's the problem. Fix it. And, and while he tries to share with her truth, he, in the end, is still full of grace and compassion. Right? He didn't have to turn water into wine. He didn't have to do anything. He didn't even probably have to be there. <laughs> but he was. And he took the opportunity, despite this, this uh, conversation, despite everything basically just being unloaded on him, he took the opportunity to show grace. Does that sound like Christ? Have you ever thought about that before? Have you ever thought about the fact that Christ was showing grace to his mother in this passage? He was showing grace to the people at the wedding. He was showing grace even to his disciples. So you look at this passage and we walk so quickly over it and, and we, we look through it with assumptions and we miss the little things. Here we have Christ who, whose time is not, and this has nothing to do with him, and yet he is gracious enough to get involved. Some people say, well, he was kind of forced, right? <laughs> he could have told the servants, <laughs> she said, do whatever I said, go about your business, right? So he, he could have done that, but he didn't. He was gracious and provided an answer, right? So we have the wedding, we have the woman. What's next? You can read. Good. We have the water. The water. Why is this significant? No, I'm not going to get into some baptism reference. <laughs> That's not where we're going here. The water. I want you to take a look at that passage, starting in verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. Okay? Um, did I continue here? No. All right, good. So, the water. What's so interesting about the water? First of all, how many jars were there? Six, right? It's the number of man. We're going to talk about numeral. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the elders are going, whoa, what? <laughs> um no, there's six, there's six jars here now. Now, how big are these jars? 20 to 30 gallons, okay? I need some help. I need some, some help from children. Uh, anybody want to volunteer? All right. We've got Natalie and Joe. You guys come up here. Come on, come on, come on. All right. <clears throat> I need some help. Um, can you guys carry that over there for me? Thanks. Are you coming? Come on, let's go. All right, come on. 
There you go. Come on. I don't know what your problem is. Oh, it's because mine's empty. All right. Very good. Very good. Now, I really would have preferred that you lift that because the bottoms can get messed up. So can you take that back and just carry it and drag it for me? Seriously. Yeah. Seriously. No, just kidding. Have a seat. Have a seat. That's all right. All right. Hey, no way. Before you go, before you go, hang on. Are these full? Almost, right? They're not, they're not quite full. I'd say there's probably about, do you know how, do you know how big of a bucket this is? No? A gallon. A gallon? This is what you get your milk in? More like No? Five gallons. Yeah, five gallons is correct, right? So we've got a five gallon bucket here, right? We've got two of them. And I'd say there's probably about four gallons of water in each. Would you say those were pretty easy to handle? No? All right. Let me, let me just see. Show off here. No, oh, never mind. Um, all right. Those are pretty heavy, right? Those are, those are not fun. <laughs> and, uh, and that's about four gallons each, right? And, and there's two of them. So how many gallons is that? If there's four gallons each and there's two of them. Eight. Eight, right? Now, now if they were full, they would be ten gallons, right? Okay, good. They're like, dude, we were not planning on doing math this morning. Come on. All right. So we've got probably about eight gallons here. All right, you guys can go sit down. So how many did one pot hold? Twenty to thirty. So I've got five gallon buckets, three of them. That's what? Fifteen gallons. So in order to get... 30 gallons would need six. All right, everybody awake? Here we go. So six of these is one. All right? Now, so we're talking about a little bit of work, right? Talking about a little bit of work. Now, that's a lot of water. But remember, again, are we talking about an American wedding? Are we talking about a Jewish wedding? Talking about a Jewish wedding, right? Okay, so pots, six pots, 20 to 30 gallons. Now, what's so important about the water? Somebody tell me, what were those pots used for? What? Purification. Yes. What is that? Washing your hands. See, if we just read the words, it means nothing, right? Do we have a, do we have a purification process as Americans? Yes. We don't talk about it. What goes on in the bathroom does not leave the bathroom, right? Okay, we have a purification process as well, okay? So, what were these, what were these jars for? They were for purification. That included hand washing. That included sometimes washing dishes. That included, uh, at sometimes, some of the commentaries say that the words used might actually be a reference to bathing. Alright? So now, now just think about, think about what those things are used for. And we've had, probably a lot of people here at this feast for probably several days. And more than likely, these were not brand new. They were probably there for a while. So they'd probably been used before. Um, let me ask you this. Kids, how many, of you, how many of you have taken a bath? How many of you have taken a bath recently? No, I'm just kidding. How many of you have taken a bath? Okay. Do you guys like taking a bath? It's fun, right? You can sit in the bathtub, right? That's cool. How many of you would like to drink the water from your bathtub? We got one? You want to drink the water from your bathtub? More power to you, buddy. You better get, your mom needs some antibiotics, I think, probably. (laughs) All right, we don't, we don't do that. We don't drink water out of the bathtub, right? Even, 
I guarantee you, even after your mother's cleaned the bathtub, or your dad, probably still don't want to drink water out of the bathtub, am I right? There's just, there's just something about drinking water out of a bathtub. Now, six pots, okay? These are not the pots that the woman at the well in chapter four was carrying around to go to the well. Alright? These are water heater pots. <laughs> These are 20 to 30 gallon pots. Right? Used for cleaning. For cleaning a lot of times the human body, for cleaning other things. Right? That's what we're talking about. Jesus didn't say, hey, go get those six pots over on the shelf in the kitchen and fill them up with water. I didn't know what he said. He said, hey, go fill up those basins that are used for cleaning. Fill those up with water. Does that not make a little difference to the story of what Christ did? See, he didn't just take Dasani water and turn it into some, I don't know, what's a good wine? (laughs) He didn't turn it into wine, right? He didn't take purified water and turn it into wine. He took water that might have been fresh from the well, but was dumped into something that had been used by a lot of people for a lot of washing over a lot of time. And I don't care how clean that water was coming out of the well, you ain't going to catch me drinking it out of that trough. (laughs) I'm just not going to. And I think most of us probably wouldn't either. I think it's interesting when you read the rest of the story how it describes that. Okay, So water, why is the water so significant? Because of where it came from. Because of where it came from. It's not just that Jesus Christ turned water into wine. It's that he took water that was connected with dirt and grime and uncleanness and turned that into wine. I mean, it's easy to, it's easy to think, wow, you know, God is, God is all powerful, you know, because that's one of the things that we get from this passage that Christ is all powerful. He has power over even nature. Over even the elements, you know, he has power over everything. He can, he is so powerful, he can molecularly change H2O into wine. That's amazing. <laughs> but even more amazing is the fact that he can change water sitting in dirty containers into wine that's the best they've ever tasted. That's amazing. Does that not give you a little different idea of what Jesus Christ has done here? So we have the wedding, we have the woman, we have the water, and we have the wine. We have the wine. So look at John chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants... Oops, two pages... Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Now, John, remember, John is witnessing this, right? John is seeing all this happen. Can you imagine the look on John's face when Jesus said, Hey, go fill those water pots that we use for cleaning. Go fill those with water. Can you imagine what was maybe going through John's mind at this point in time? Wait, wait a minute. <laughs> what, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, so he's, he's seeing this. He's, he's an eyewitness to this. He, he knows what's going on here. So, so Jesus knows what's going on. The disciples know what's going on because they're, they're with him. 
And the servants know what's going on because they're the ones that had to drag all the water from the well and put it into these basins. And then, <clears throat> then he says, now go take some water out and give it to the master of the, of the wedding. Now, <clears throat> Scripture does not tell us, in reference to the wine, <clears throat> how much of that water was made into wine. Do you see it in there? The only thing that we know was made into wine was what was given to the master. Now, we assume that he changed all of it to wine, but is that what Scripture says? Not necessarily. You know? <clears throat> how would you have taught that Jesus changed 120 gallons of water into wine? Maybe he did. I don't know. But the Bible doesn't tell us. You know, this is <clears throat> something that we need to be very careful of. And it goes back to our, our statement even last week about how we want to be very careful when we're preaching and teaching that we properly present the Word of God, right? That we are true to what Scripture says, okay? Now, is it, is it maybe a huge deal to say Jesus changed, you know, the six pots of water into wine? I don't know. Maybe we'll get to heaven and find out he did. You know, could he have? Absolutely. But we don't know. The Bible doesn't say. So when we're teaching and we're preaching and when we're reading and when we're studying, we need to be very careful not to read into Scripture what isn't there. Scripture tells us the truth, right? So we do know that he changed some water into wine. We don't know when that happened. We don't know what that transition looked like. It's not described for us. All we know is he said, take some out of the jar, give it to the master. And at some point, and if you look, even, even look in the wet, uh, how does it describe it here? Go back. Um, it says, when the master of the feast tasted the water become wine. The water now become wine. When did that happen? Don't know. <laughs> Scripture doesn't tell us. Could have been on the way. Could have been in the pot. Could have been when he tasted it. We don't know. You know, it doesn't tell us. So I, we need to be very careful about making assumptions of what Scripture says. Um, but I think, you know, there's some things that we can learn about this wine. Christ has taken wine from, essentially, in my opinion, dirty water. <laughs> right? But it's interesting um, that the disciples knew about it, and Jesus knew about it, and the servants knew about it. Can you imagine being one of those servants, being the guy who gave that to the master of the wedding? You know? You just got done lugging all this water to fill up basins that are, if if they weren't changed to wine, probably were then going to be used for more clean cleansing, <laughs> you know, more purification process. Um, and it's interesting. The ma- it says the master of the ceremonies did not know, or the master of the wedding did not know where it came from. It's very likely that these pots were either outside or in a different room or different place where nobody nobody saw what was happening except Jesus, the disciples, and the servants who are involved. And you imagine being that servant as he, as he dips a glass or whatever into that water, and, and he's, I mean, I don't, I don't know if maybe, he, maybe it was a glass cup and he was walking and he saw it turned to, I mean, I don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us, right? We have no clue. <clears throat> so whatever happened, he, he, he got liquid out of the pot in a cup, and he went, and he gave it to the master. And, and, and just as John is probably sitting here going, I can't believe this is happening. This servant really is probably sitting there going, 
I can't believe this is happening. Because <laughs> the servant probably even knows even better than anybody else what's been in that trough. Because <laughs> they're probably the ones doing all the cleaning. Right? So, imagine being that servant and you hand this glass to the master of the, of the feast. Apparently somebody very prominent. Right? And, and you're just sitting there and you know exactly where you got it from. And you're just waiting to hear what comes out of this guy's mouth. Right? And what does he say? Wow! This is good! That's in the Greek. All right? He says, this is amazing. He goes, this is, this is the best wine so far. All right? And he goes, and he goes over to the bridegroom because again, does he know where, does he know where it came from? No, he doesn't have a clue. <laughs> he just knows the servant brought him some more wine and it's fantastic. And so he goes over to the bridegroom and he goes, man, I tell you what, you know, most of the time we drink the good wine first, but you've saved the best for last. Can you imagine being the bridegroom? He's like, great. <laughs> I don't know if he knew that they were out. You know, did anybody know? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. We knew that Mary knew, you know, and Mary told Jesus. And um, and so here we have we have this water has been turned into wine, right? And the wine is not just any ordinary wine. It is the best wine. It's been taken from deluge. <laughs> from trash, from garbage pots and turned into the best wine of the feast. Is that not a, not a picture of what Christ can do in our lives? Does he not pull us from degradation, from sin, from wickedness, from dirtiness? And does he not then transform us to become more like Christ? Absolutely. Of course, that process takes a whole lot more time than walking from the pot to the master of the feast. But if Christ can do that with water and wine, can he not do that with our lives? So we have the wedding, we have the woman, we have the water and the wine. But here's the key. After all of that, we have the wonder. The wonder. What in the world are you talking about? Let's look at the last couple of verses. Did I do it right? Is it wrong? Yeah, that's messed up. <laughs> Let's look at verse uh, 11. John chapter 2, verse 11. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. I think it's very interesting. You know, it, it says there that he, was, he began to manifest his glory, right? He began to show who he really was. He wasn't just the head of the household of Mary and that family. He wasn't just the, uh, the son of Joseph who was probably carrying on the carpenter, you know, until he had walked away now with the disciples. He wasn't just a human. He was the son of God. And he begins now and throughout the rest of the book of John to reveal who he is. But I think it's very interesting how he does this the first time. Remember? What did he say to his mother? He said, woman... I'm going to keep throwing that out there. He said, he said, woman, what does this to do with me? Right? But more specifically, he says, now is not my time. Now is not my time. And I think it's interesting that the only people who knew that Jesus did this miracle were the ones that were around him and were involved. You know? You think about almost every other miracle that we have in Scripture, Jesus did in public. You know? Or at least it was, it was proclaimed publicly. Right? 
And yet here, at the beginning of his ministry, he gives grace to his mother and to this, the people at the wedding and does this miracle, not so that everyone else can see, but just for a few. Just for a few, because his time was not yet. Right? And what was the result? As he does this wondrous act of turning water in pots that were used for cleaning things, including the human body, as he takes that water and he turns it into wonderful, magnificent wine. He does so not to proclaim that he's this great magician. He does so to prove to those men who are following him that he is. And what is the result? It says they believed, right? Jeff brought it up this morning. What's the, what, what's the purpose of the book of John? John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Many other things, many other signs did Jesus in the presence of many witnesses, but these are written, why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you'll have life. So here we have the first miracle of Christ, and it's not even public. It's for a select group of people to help them believe that he is who he said he was. We can get focused on the number of gallons. We can get focused on um, the wine. You know, I'll be honest with you, we kind of had some some fun debating who was going to teach this passage and have to tell people whether or not it was okay to drink wine. Right? We could focus on that, but that's not the point. That's not the point. The point of the scripture is that Jesus took time to do something he didn't have to do, was gracious enough in secret to perform a miracle so that those men who were following him would... And you know what that did for them? They began following harder, did they not? You look at, you look at the relationship moving forward and there is a closer bond. You don't, you just can't, it's really loose at the beginning. It's loose. You know, we've got Peter's, or, or Andrew's going to get in Peter and bringing him in. And we've got Nathan who's like, can anything good come out of Galilee or Nazareth? And, and you know, he's, he's kind of skeptical of what's going on. And, 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 and it's interesting, it ends, verse, chapter one ends with Jesus saying, you're going to see greater signs than me telling you that I saw you under the fig tree. Right? And here, right off the bat, on day three, <laughs> he sees a sign. Right? And it solidifies their faith as they move forward. The question is, does it do the same for us? Because that's the purpose. John said, these are written so that you might believe and you might have life in his name. Right? So as we look at this passage, as we look at the passages to come, as we read what Jesus has to say, the things that Jesus does, the miracles that he performs, don't brush over them. Study them. Get into the weeds. Dig deep. Because I would guess that more than likely, the story means a little bit more this morning than perhaps it has in the past. I know for me it does. Because we've taken the time to understand and to dig deeper. And that's what we're doing on Sunday mornings. And that's what we should be doing every day of every week, of every month, of every year, every time we open the Word of God. Digging deep. To know the one who has saved us. Because if we don't know Christ, we cannot truly be followers of him. And we certainly cannot be mature followers of him. Father, we thank you for this miracle of Christ, Lord. And and yes, it is amazing.
the fact that he has the power over everything. No matter what is going on in our life, no matter what trials we run into, no matter what uh, difficulties we have, Christ has the power, the ability, the knowledge, the understanding, the experience to not just walk through it with us, but to deliver us and to sustain us as we go through it. In this passage, the Lord reveals his power and his ability to change water to wine. But Lord, he did this not just to provide wine. You did this so that you could proclaim your glory, so that you could be worshipped, so that you could be believed. And it was effective on the disciples that were there. And Lord, I pray that as we study it, as we go forward, that it would be effective for us as well, that we would not simply hang it on our, our belt of knowledge, but that we would apply it to our lives, that we would then look at it and see that you are powerful, that you do control everything, and see that you not only are all those things, but you care for us. And you said that you even know when a sparrow falls. How much more do you care about us, Lord? And I, I just, I pray that as we get to know you in the days and weeks ahead as we study the book of John, that you would reveal yourself to us. That it would not just be an academic study. That it would not just be going through a bunch of passages that we've all read before. Lord, I want you to reveal to this church who you are. Because as we know you, we then can follow you. And that is our goal, Lord. That's what you've called us to do. You've called us to be followers of Christ. And I pray that as we look at you through Scripture, that we would become mature followers of Christ. Not so that we can boast in ourselves, but so that we can boast in you for your glory, just as you received the glory when you changed the water to wine. Father, I pray that you'd be with us as we go our ways this evening, be with the times of life groups, of fellowship, time in the Word, gathering together around our unity in Christ, Lord. We thank you for everything that you've done. Let us not forget it. In Christ's name we pray.